Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back. You are listening to PositivityStrategist.com slash PS60. Now, if you're new to Positivity Strategist, I extend a warm welcome. And my desire is for you to connect with ideas, with people and practices on this show that will help you walk a little lighter, smile a lot more, breathe more freely, and appreciate that there's really so much to value about life when you focus on what works and what you want in life versus what's broken and what doesn't work. And to my existing listeners, I'm grateful to you for your support and feedback over this last year. I do this podcast because I want to share what I've learned about what works. And I want to bring the voice of others into the show who are doing really good things in the world that are, that's congruent with my mission. Now, your feedback means a lot and how you show that is by subscribing to the show. So if you haven't already, you can subscribe by going to positivitystrategist.com slash podcast and fill out the form there or do it via your favorite podcasting app. And that could be Stitcher or Google Music or podcast on iTunes or any other. And another way that you can show your appreciation for the show is to leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. Having frequent reviews is important to podcasters because it helps to keep our shows visible on the app stores, and that means people can find them. Now, just before I introduce my guest, and I'm so excited to do this, I just want to let you know that I have some exciting innovations coming up for 2017, so do stay tuned. And remember, if you have any ideas about the show or people you think I, that would resonate with this show and you'd like to hear about or hear from, please let me know via my website or you can leave a message via SpeakPipe, which you'll find on the podcast homepage. And that again is positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And so that's enough of the background and the commercials. And now to today's show. Today, I'm very excited because our focus is on happiness. And I'm speaking with the author of a very sweet and readable book called Suitcase of Happiness. This book offers a roadmap to achieve and enjoy your happiest life. It's full of practical ideas. It's full of beautiful stories. It's very touching. You will laugh. You'll be touched. You'll be moved to tears. And I'm very privileged to have the author with me today, and he is Mark Jaffe. So, Mark, thank you for spending time with me today, and welcome to Positivity Strategist. Oh, thank you so much, Robin. I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you today. Wonderful. Mark is actually speaking to me from... Santa Monica, California. Oh, how fantastic. Mark, you'll, you'll learn a little bit about Mark as we go through, but Mark is a former senior executive at the Walt Disney Company. Now, when you hear that, you might think, no wonder he's an expert on happiness, but it goes much deeper. Mark started to be intrigued about happiness from a very young age. 
And they say that if you want to identify what your calling is in life, go back to remember what you did as a child. How did you while away your hours as a child? Where did you let your imagination go? Mark, does that ring true for you? It resonates so loudly for me, Robin, because I was not very happy at a child as a child at all. I, I had one friend and he wasn't very popular either. And I desperately wanted happiness. It came from a place of wanting, a, a place not of abundance, but of scarcity. And I just one day decided, that's it, I'm, I'm going to be happy. And I thought I was going to find happiness by being popular and finding a group of people who would accept me because I thought that's the way to do it. You're in a group, you're part of an, you know, a whole camaraderie. And so I found this group and it was a group of substance abusers and the price of admission was the willingness in seventh grade to smoke cigarettes at the local 7-Eleven during lunch. And all of a sudden when I got there, as so happens when we think, oh, if I could only get this, then I'll be happy. I wasn't happy. I mean, smoking cigarettes at a 7-Eleven in seventh grade was not my idea of happiness. And so I embarked on this journey at that moment to find out what was it? What would create this wonderful, happy state of being for me? And not just a, a brief moment of happiness, as people sometimes think happiness are these fleeting moments that you grasp and then they you know, flitter away, but an enduring state of happiness. And actually, I got the, my big break when my parents told me in ninth grade we were going to move to California. So I said, this is it. This is my chance to get a large group of friends and be popular and have the resulting happiness. And so as if you were a shy kid, you know, shy kids could stand in the corner and watch everybody and no one even notices they're there. And I spent the last few months in ninth grade finding out what made people popular mm. and how they got to be members of groups. And I found out that it was, you know, this confidence in how you presented yourself. It was a quick wittedness in how you were able to just flippantly speak and interesting tidbits that you found interesting and people found funny. And it, one of the things I found that it wasn't was you didn't have to be unbelievably attractive. There were a lot of people who were distinctly unattractive who were incredibly popular. And so I practiced all these things as we went cross country because if you've ever driven cross country with a trailer – you, you'll remember that these campgrounds would always have rec rooms in them. And every night, any kid from 12 to 18 would go to these rec rooms and, and hang out together. And what a great laboratory for me to practice everything I learned about being popular and happy. Mm. And, and because it's no risk. You know, the next day everybody goes to their new destination. And, you know, if you failed, you get to start the next day. So I figured this was just perfect. Mm. So two months later, I get to California. And, and, you know, within a matter of 30 days, I have this wonderful circle of really great people as friends. But the most poignant part of this story happened a year later. I was taking this class, which could only be offered in the 1970s in California, called Awareness and Living. It was actually a sanctioned class that really made you aware of who you were in the context of your world and society. Mm. And, and they had an amazing exercise one day where everybody in the room was randomly assigned an individual. And you were told to write your honest opinion of that individual po positively or negatively. I mean, obviously, you can write your another individual individual in the room. 
correct, another yeah. student. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you couldn't write you're a jerk because there's no value in that. But if you were to write something negative, you had to create value for that individual as a result of hearing it. And I'll never forget mine. I mean, as you could imagine, every kid is scared to death to have a peer anonymously tell you in an honest way what they really think of you. It's like every teenager's nightmare. So we're all on pins and needles. And I'll never forget mine. I don't know who wrote it. But this person said, you see the world through rose-colored glasses always. Mm. Do we live in the same expletive world? (laughs) And at that moment, I realized... I had achieved happiness. It's what I was projecting to people who did never knew it was my quest. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you're telling that story, I had this insight of it seems to me that you are equating popularity with happiness. Yeah, popularity, I felt at that moment, was the pathway to getting all those people to be my friend. And the experiences I would have with my friends would be what would produce the happiness for me. Mm. So popularity wasn't the end goal in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It was the pathway to get there. Yeah. And how that made you feel. Correct. Because I would feel like I had a higher degree of self-worth which at that moment in my life was truly lacking because mm-hmm. I was very unpopular and I didn't have friends. And teenagers tend to measure their self-worth through who their friends are and the experiences that they have with them. Mm. And so the rose-colored glasses was a real compliment to you. It was because it showed me that people – that I was projecting a very positive, mm-hmm. optimistic view of who I was and who I was as a teenager in 11th grade. Yeah. And Mark, do you subscribe to the view that this is innate to us? And let me just um, tell you why I'm asking this question. Um, because I I would be told that I looked at the world through rose-coloured glasses and that was often a criticism, particularly by my father. He was trying to tell me that I was just too too naive and too romantic and so on. So maybe he did it to protect me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought it, I, I was happy to be described that way. And then I also used to get called that I was a ray of sunshine. I was Miss Sunshine. And I guess, you know, it depends on how you, whether you take that as like, um, that's a compliment. And I accepted these things as compliments. And I really think it, it does inform who I am and how I see the world. So I think there is an innateness there, and I also know it can be learned. So how do, what's your take on that? You know, I wish I knew if it was innate for me. It was clearly learned. I mean, mm. I obviously had the capacity for it, but I sense, you know, like most things, I mean, when we go through hardship and compared to the hardships everyone has had by the time we get older, the one about being unpopular when you're in seventh grade is a very small one. But I think when we go through hardships, it forces us to do a reexamination nice, of yeah. who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, for me, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't exchange that experience for anything because it was very foundational to how I would then learn other things that would create an even happier and more meaningful life for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for saying that, too. So that triggers for me, you it's the capacity to be able to reframe, right? So you can either you know, look, choose to look at it and think, well, there's another way of looking at this and I'm choosing to look at it through a more positive, hopeful lens or not. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, what the lack of perspective mm. is one of the biggest barriers I think that we have and one of the most easy for us to change. I mean, we just look through the world through a different lens. And as a result, the world looks differently to mm. us yeah. and we interact with the world in a different way. Yeah. And that's one of the four um, lenses. I, I don't that's not the term you use, I don't think, in the book, and I can't remember, you know, about what you focus on, <laughs> right? Right, um, So yeah. what you focus on grows. Um, so I'm just looking at the book now, but you know what I'm referring to, obviously, because you wrote it. Um, well, you know, there are four laws of focus. Four clearly, laws of focus, yes. And clearly, you know, I was talking about uh, in that story about my childhood, what, that I was focused on the specific pathway of uh, achieving popularity in order to achieve what I believed was happiness at age 15. Mm. But, you know, anyone can apply the first law. You know, what you focus on, you find. Mm. And I'll never forget the time that my best friend Bob and I uh, went up to the Oregon coast. We would always just pick a spot on the map and fly there and explore. That was how we enjoyed ourselves and still do. And it was, if you've ever lived in a rainy climate, it was incredibly rainy until it wasn't. And when the sun came out, everybody blankets the streets. And if you're single, hormones are just flying, which I was at the time. And I remember walking down this beautiful seaside uh, village with houses on the beach and this main street, and there were just gorgeous women walking towards us. And I couldn't help as two particularly beautiful women approached us to comment to my friend, Bob, did you see that? And he said, oh, yes, I did. And they seem to have weathered the adverse elements so well. And I'm thinking, Bob? Are you talking about the girls? Because that's not how you discuss when you talk about people. They don't weather elements. He goes, oh, no, no, no. Um, the, you know, the, the salt airs had no corrosive effect at all. I, I've got to go in for a closer look. And I'm about to grab him by the neck saying this is going to be a disaster. You should not go up to these women until I noticed he was going in the other direction. And he was walking towards the houses on the beach. And all of a sudden it occurred to me. He wasn't looking at the girls. He was looking at the shingles because he also wanted shingles that protected his house mm -hmm. from the salt air mm -hmm. and the corrosive elements. And it was just shocking that we could have walked down the same street side by mm -hmm. side and seen two completely different things. Yeah. And it's just proof that what you focus on, you find. And yeah. it has so many applications yeah. to our lives. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, in the world, you know, that I work in, it's we talk about that too, what you focus on grows, what you put your attention to, you'll find. And that's just lived out all the time. So, yes, I, I there's so many things in your book that just resonate. You know, you know you, you've written it. I'm part of the choir here. <laughs> but, you know, um, I – and the title of the book and the fact I just – if there are just listeners here who haven't yet looked at the show notes page or are not aware of your book yet, Mark, Mark spells happiness with a Y. Um, so I love the title of your book. Would you share why you called your lovely little book um, – and I'm calling it a lovely little book in an endearing sense. It's an easy read. It's full of great tips and strategies. So it really is very valuable, I think. So tell us about the title of it, please, Mark. Sure. So I would, as I finished the book, and originally the book was called Collection, uh, Collecting Happiness. 
Uh, I had heard a story about uh, a couple in France, Veronique and Joffrey de Bougie, who just had the stereotypical family that we all want. I mean, two loving children. They did everything together, dinner every night together. They had honest, open, meaningful conversations and also had tremendous fun and incredible memories. And one day, Veronique went out with some of her friends to a cafe in Paris. And unfortunately, that day was November 2015 during the terrorist attacks, and she was tragically killed. And three days later, Joffrey is asked to give a eulogy, which because of the notoriety of the event, you could actually still see on YouTube. It's in French, but you could translate it. And in that eulogy, he spoke of the horror of the three days between her passing and his time giving the eulogy itself. And if you've ever lost someone, you know that moments just seem like an eternity during that period of time. And he was talking about the one thing that gave them strength and gave them the ability to go from one moment to the next and to arrive three days later in that place in, in, and, and be able to be sane and, and together as a, as a family unit uh, once they got there. And it was the gift, this incredible gift that Veronique had given them. And he called that gift her valise de bonheur, her suitcase of happiness. And it wasn't a real suitcase. It was a metaphorical suitcase where she put all these amazing memories that she had, these incredible moments, you know, the moments that take your breath away only to restore it seconds later, these joy and laughter and meaning and, and everything that goes into, the, you know, your definitions of happiness and fulfillment and richness in your life. And not only was it this great way to surround herself with happiness and this great way to live in this environment and this, you know, little world of happiness that she was able to create and recreate and relive and build and add upon. But I hadn't thought of it as a legacy that she had continually given throughout her life to her husband and her two children. Mm -hmm. And he said in that eulogy, it was this living gift, this suitcase of happiness, this Felice de Bonaire that gave them the strength to make it to that day and it was the most valuable thing that she had given any of them. Mm. And for me, it was just so inspiring because I bought this book to, to give, I mean, I bought this book, I created this book to give my children a legacy of how I've been able to have this true, enduring, happy life. And, uh, and that's why it's called, it's happiness is with a Y to differentiate it from what most people perceive as fleeting moments of happiness. This is happiness with a Y I defy as an enduring state of happiness. And it never occurred to me that someone else elsewhere in the world, not only was collecting happy moments in a similar way to I was, but also gave it as a legacy to their children. I, and I was so unbelievably touched by that coincidence that I named it uh, Suitcase of Happiness, or as uh, Joffrey put it in the eulogy, Felice de Bonaire. Yeah. Does he know that? Uh, Have you no. been in touch with him? I, I actually found out about it through a friend uh -huh. who had met a good friend of his. That's how the story came known to mm -hmm. me. And I don't know if she had, the friend had actually shared with him that I had done that. I had asked them to, but I, 
I had mm. never followed up. I hope he has. I mean, mm. I, someday I would hope to connect with him. And, and who knows, he could be a listener to your podcast and maybe I'll have that opportunity. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? That would be so serendipitous. Um, yes, I, I mean, when I read that, you know, at the beginning of your book, I was really touched by that. And even in your telling it, um, I get goosebumps. And I remember actually seeing him interviewed, and I think it was on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, um, he he is a photographer and actually yes. a well-known one. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so it had, um, you know, a meaning for me because I had was familiar with that story. So very lovely. And yes, you know, and- it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that you pointed out that it was serendipitous because I have a very strong feeling about serendipity. Uh, I, I, I agree with, um, I believe her name is Elizabeth Berg, who said that serendip, there's no such thing as serendipity. It's just your intention unmasked. Mm. And I'm a big believer in intention. So it was no accident that I'm hoping he's listening because I said it on the show in case he was. Oh, oh, I've got goosebumps again. <laughs> that would be so awesome. That would be just truly lovely. Um, yes, and in the so we've talked about the beginning of the book where you introduce why you've how you were impacted by that story and why um, it's about the legacy and it's about a legacy of happiness. And then you know you come full circle and at the end of the book. You you talk about that, and I'm just looking at um, a lovely piece. What is important is that what we have left after we are gone is meaningful and enduring in the impact it has had on others. That is our legacy. And then I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading from underneath the paragraph where you refer to Joseph Campbell where the paragraph starts with moments of happiness. I love that paragraph. Moments of happiness for all of us can come from the creation of meaning from answering the question as to why we are here and creating our legacy as the answer. Some people put their names on buildings, but that doesn't have to be your way to create a legacy. You can give to charitable organizations. You can volunteer your time for causes in which you believe. You can be an inspiration to others by setting an example for kindness and selfishness or selflessness. Ask yourself what is really important the psychologist Lee Jampolsky said, and then have the wisdom and courage to build your life around the answer. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. So, you know, this is just not a feel-good, happy little book. I think there's, you know, you you talk about the um, eudaimonia of happiness. So it's all about, you know, meaning in happiness, not just the hedonistic, let's have a fun go out shopping spree kind of happiness. Now, I wonder if I may invite you to say a little bit about the you, – you divide the book into the laws of focus, which we've talked about, and then there are five barriers to happiness and then there are mm-hmm. ten pathways to happiness. And the barrier that I was fascinated was was when you talk about anger. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether – you say that control defeats anger. So by exercising control – we can overcome anger. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, I think anger often comes from frustration. Uh-huh. Something is happening and it shouldn't be happening and it's just wrong and I wish I could do something about it. I'm just getting so angry just thinking about this thing that I can't stop and that's happened and 
sometimes if you just step back and control a small piece of that, you then can start the process to mitigate that anger. Because as the Buddha said, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Mm. That's just not how things work. Mm. And I remember one example. I mean, uh, and unfortunately, my first marriage ended in divorce. And for a brief period of time following our separation, there was a tremendous amount of anger. And of course, with the holidays coming up, you know, that's when a lot of that stuff comes to the fore. And in particular, in our family, Thanksgiving was the event. That was the big thing. And so there's only one dinner involved in Thanksgiving. And now there are two households. So how do my wife and I deal with that? And now, fortunately, we've worked through everything. I mean, we see each other and it's really wonderful for us to get back together with our kids on occasion. But at that time, it was very difficult because she wanted to have the Thanksgiving meal and I wanted to have the Thanksgiving meal. And she kept saying, but I'll have the Thanksgiving meal and they'll get to your house in time for dessert. And I said, but it's all about the turkey. I mean, I'm just going to sit there, you know, and wait for my pumpkin pie to get stale and then they'll show up at some point. This sounds awful. It's just wrong. And all of a sudden I realized, well, wait a minute, maybe we could work something out. So one, we don't have such an abbreviated amount of time with them. And two, maybe it's not so bad getting them second. And so we spoke about maybe she would start two hours early. I would start two hours later, which would give them more time with each of us. And then I realized I think I would rather have them be with me as it ended as opposed to leaving in the middle. Mm. So all of a sudden, we were both able to get a lot of what we wanted. We were both able to exercise control over what could be a very explosive. Uh, okay. I mean, their whole movies brought mm. about about Thanksgiving and, and that movie Avalon comes to mind mm. uh, and, and how explosive things around the holidays could be. But by both of us exercising a degree of control and working something out, we were able to mitigate that anger. And actually, that became a wonderful pattern for us in beginning to control a lot of the things in our divorce that were troubling to the point where we now have a healthy and, and very positive relationship. Yeah. And doesn't it often just come down to, Mark, um, asking the questions and lis truly listening? We think we know we know what we want, but have we truly listened to find out what somebody else wants? And so it's that, you know, that opportunity to have the dialogue and, you know, to, to listen to each other. Well, it's, it's actually uh, amazing. I remember when I one time was expressing to uh, a client my view on negotiation. And, and I said, I believe negotiation is trying with all of your might to give your person on the other end of the table everything they need. And his response was, I would never hire you as a negotiator. <laughs> And I said, but the truth is often what they need, not what they want, but what they need is actually something you can give to them. And the only way you will ever find out what they need as opposed to what they want is to listen and mm -hmm. ask more questions and listen to those answers and ask more questions. Mm -hmm. And often you can have a very successful negotiation. You could have a very successful mitigation of anger just by, as you put it, by listening very closely and asking more probing questions. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And even asking yourself, what's really important to me, just like you said? 
Yeah, we have a lot of preconceived notions about what's important. And sometimes if we just take a quiet moment and examine those, we'll realize that maybe not everything that we think is so important is as important as we think it is. Yeah. And, and it reminds me of the concept of success. I mean, my son was going into the workplace and I was trying to give him a framework by which to frame success, you know, because obviously coming out of college, getting a great job, working so many hours and, you know, success, you know, everyone thinks the ladder of success leads to happiness, but the ladder of success just leads rung by rung to more success, mm -hmm. not happiness. And so I was trying to give him a framework of what's important. And it forced me to reexamine what I believed was important. How would I ever know that I'm successful? How would I ever know I've gotten there? And is success as dependent upon material well-being as we're led to believe in the United States? And so I reframed my definition of success. And, and, and I'd love to share it with you. And he's uh, adopted it as well. And so my belief is that success is the ability and the freedom to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it with people who are meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when we're on this, this hamster wheel, we're always working and then all of a sudden we realize 20 years have gone by and we're still not happy. And I believe it's because we didn't focus to be successful in creating a meaningful life for ourselves. Yes. And what you're identifying there is it's different for each of us. So you can't have this abstract notion of what success looks like. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I remember I took my son when he was 15 to this area in Panama called the Darien, which is a very lawless, crazy tribal area, but I love adventure travel and he does too. And we stayed in this village where he was asking me, why is everybody always wearing the same outfit? You know, because we would see the guy with the green shirt and the girl with the yellow pants. And when we were leaving the village, we noticed that all the kids were jumping into the stream and they were taking their underwear off and putting it on their head. And we had this incredible, wonderful time in the village. And at the end, when he was noticing these kids with underwear on their head, jumping into the stream, laughing and, you know, just having the time of their lives, he looked at me and he said, and he was all of 15 years old, raised in California with all of the materialistic demands that are placed even on kids of that age. And he looked at me and he said, why did they put their underwear on their heads? And I said, Jason, it's because it's their only pair. Mm. And if they're sliding in the mud in the river, they're going to get dirty and then they have to wait for someone to wash it. Mm -hmm. And, and he's looking at me kind of quizzically. And I said, by the way, I, I have a thought, I have a question for you. Who has the better life, you in California or these people here? And clearly he could see there were no possessions. There were, I mean, there are no walls on any of the huts. I mean, they were just built on stilts. No, no, no one was stealing anything. Everybody worked together. And he paused and he paused and he just looked at me and then all of a sudden he leveled his gaze and he said, I don't know. And I realized at that moment, he did know. He did know what it took to lead a fulfilling life. He did know what was important. And he was well on the path to refining those notions as he grew older. Wow. And that was, um, that was an experience he had at age 15. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, and you also at the age of 15 came to your insights as well. Oh, I can't believe you pointed that out. And I had never thought about it in that way. Thank you. <laughs> I had never thought that we were both the same age. Oh, wow. you're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, one of the things I find also um, lovely in your book is that, and you've been doing it throughout our conversation today, is you know, it's you you're sharing a lot of personal stories, and um, and so your candor and your, for me anyway, as I read it, your authenticity comes through, and you share a lot of your vulnerabilities, and that I think that's very touching at the heartfelt level. Um, it's. It's so important and to, you know, to read that coming from a man with your experience and, and you know, your corporate business and so on. Um, what are you doing now? How are you, how are you bringing this to or are you thinking about how we can bring this to corporate America or, you know, making it far, putting it more on the, the agenda of what constitutes a happy life or a meaningful life? What are you doing well, now? I'm glad you asked because I think that fortunately in the last maybe three to five years, there's been such an increased focus on wellness and how wellness can really create a better work environment that results in more productivity. And so when corporations currently talk about happiness in a corporation, they talk about how they could create happiness within their four walls how they can make people feel more fulfilled in their jobs, have more input into their careers, have them feel valued, whether it's they're getting massages or they have weekly sessions where they could talk to their supervisor. But the one thing that I believe corporations are ignoring and they shouldn't ignore is what happens outside of those four walls. Mm. Because as we know, if you have a disgruntled worker who is disgruntled really because he just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, productivity is not going to be high that day in his cubicle area. It's just not. And I think that people bring a life into the workplace and that there is already very strong research that shows that employees who are generally happy as human beings are more productive. I mean, Fast Company a couple of years ago, put out a study that basically showed that there that among employees that self-assessed that they had they were happy individuals, they were, according to the assessment of the company, twelve percent more productive. Which company was and, that? Uh, it was a, a span of companies, but the uh, article was in a publication called Fast Company. Oh, Fast. Okay, yeah, I got it. I know the magazine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, thanks. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I believe that corporations should pay more attention to happiness outside of the workplace and giving employees not only tools to be successful in their job, but be successful in their lives. Yeah. And so if I could create that kind of an impact and contribute to an increase in productivity in corporations and an increase in uh, gross national product as a result, that would be a very lofty goal and, and I would be thrilled to make one iota of difference in getting us there. And so are you actively working in, with companies to do this? Yeah, well, not currently. I have actually started to approach a number of companies to propose the type of workshops and the type of activities mm. that I think it would benefit their employees. And I'm just hoping that uh, some companies actually begin to embrace mm. that and, and implement it as part of their wellness program. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of um, 
I mean, if, if, you're, if you're really looking to increase the happiness, you need to define what it is for that particular context, right? And so I'm thinking about, you know, working in organisations and working on how you live out values. I mean, you can have a list of values on the wall saying, you know, we believe in honesty and teamwork and integrity and whatever. But what does that really mean? How do you how do you live that out? What does it look like in terms of the way we talk to each other, the way we behave with each other, how we achieve our profitability, how we relate to, you know, our customers, our suppliers, all of those things. So it would be a wonderful opportunity to talk about what what if what would happiness look like in our context? How would we measure that by by what we're doing here, what we're saying here, what we're producing here? Well, I think you raise a great point and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about what a successful life is. And you said, but it's so different for each individual. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you. I don't think we can define it for people, but what we can do is give people the tools by which they could define it and achieve it for themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, happiness, you know, it's not easy to find happiness in ourselves. And it certainly, as Agnes Repellier said, impossible to find it elsewhere. And <laughs> so if we could, if we could only equip our employees with the tools to find it within themselves, mm. I think that we're tremendously within integrity of who these corporations want to be in promoting the kind of teamwork and camaraderie and, and happiness throughout the company. Yeah, and sense of creativity and fulfillment. So mm-hmm. maybe your pathways are a way to it. Well, I believe they are. I mean, what I did is I chose 10 that have worked for me. Not all 10 will work for everyone. And and I think it's kind of like going to a Viennese table. If you've ever gone to a party where they have a Viennese table and it's this tremendous expansive array of desserts and you look at it and it's just <laughs> a cornucopia of incredible things that you can't wait to eat. And you pick out, you can't eat all of them, but you pick out the ones that, that you, that taste best to you. And so when I look at these 10 pathways to happiness, they've, they've all worked so incredibly well for me, but I know there'll be some that work really well for some people and others that will work really well for others. And so I look at these 10 pathways as this cornucopia, as this Viennese table of wonderful ways to make your life full and rich and rewarding. Yeah. So here's a great opportunity for me to ask you, as you were creating this book and you, when you were coming to you know, the process for coming to these 10 pathways, what was a high point for you? I mean, when did you feel so alive and energized and joyful and really with your own integrity as you were producing, as you were going through this process? You know, what's, a, what's your story about how you felt so connected, so that this was right? Well, that's the statement. This is the moment. I mean, it's just such an easy moment to tell you because this is the moment where I said I'm on the right journey. I'm taking the right pathway for me to to hopefully set up what I'll be doing for the next 20 years. So as I had pretty much finished the book, I was walking with my girlfriend in downtown Los Angeles in this big, beautiful open park that they had constructed in the middle of the city. 
And they had this amazing fountain, you know, one of those fountains where the water sprays up. And in the summertime, the kids could walk in the fountain in three, four inches of water and really experience the joy of all this playful water. Mm -hmm. And as we were walking past on this cold fall evening, I noticed there was a, a gentleman in the fountain in his electric wheelchair doing figure eights in the fountain and <laughs> laughing at the top of his lungs. And I said to my girlfriend, I said, I have to talk to him. And she's like, are you nuts? So we went over to him and I said, I couldn't help but noticing you were having the time of your life in that fountain. And he said, I absolutely was. I was in that fountain because I can go in that fountain. Mm. And I said, really? He said, well, look at me. I mean, look at my clothing. I'm obviously homeless. I'm in an electric wheelchair. That should tell you that this is a permanent disability that I have. I mean, does it look like I've washed my hair recently? I haven't. I don't have a place to wash my hair. But two years ago, I realized that life didn't deal me a good, a good hand, but I could make the most with that hand as I chose. And so I went to the Central Library, which is two blocks from this park, and I read every book on happiness I could find because I decided I was going to be a happy person. And then I went to a judge and changed my name to Happy H. Happy. And he handed me a business card and he said, you don't have to worry, wonder about what the middle H is because it's also happy. <laughs> So this guy consciously wow. went to have a happy life. He changed his name to happy, happy, happy. And here he was on a, on an evening where no one else was in the park except for us having the time of his life. And it didn't escape me that he was enjoying himself in a way that I couldn't because I wasn't about to go into that fountain in four mm. inches of water when it's cold outside. But because he was in an electric wheelchair, because he was disabled, and because he made the choice to be happy, he was now experiencing this incredible happy moment that no one else could experience mm. except him. Mm. Whoa, that's very poignant. Yeah, it's about the choice. And that's when I said, mm. that is not serendipity. Mm -hmm. It was, I was somehow going to be seeing him in that place, having that conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And it was so clear to me that it had something to do with the fact that I embarked on this journey yeah. of writing this book and spreading that word. Yeah, that's great. Wow. So it was like, um, um, I don't know, it was almost like a validation. You just knew that this was what you were meant to be doing. And Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it was at the, I felt like I was meant to be at that moment at that mm -hmm. time. And, and for me, I, you know, I feel that we have the ability and we often choose not to, to celebrate and to take them, squeeze the juice out of every moment. You know, if, if you ever remember eating a grapefruit as a child and your mom would squeeze the juice out of that grapefruit so you get every last drop of goodness. And that's how I view these moments. And mm -hmm. I felt like here was, you know, obviously a, a huge poignant moment, but it was another moment. And I could make other moments as huge and as poignant 
because I can participate in those moments as largely as I choose. Yeah, yeah. So with the 10 pathways to happiness, um, are there any that are particularly close to you? Because you said that, you know, the 10 of them, some will resonate with some people. And I love the way that you give us a choice. You talk about this cornucopia of, of delicacies that people might choose from. What about you? What resonates mainly for you? What's worked for you? Wow, that's like asking someone which of their children they like best. <laughs> I was thinking that was a hard question as it was coming out of my mouth very awkwardly. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny. My children, when they were younger, used to say, who do you like best? And I'd always say the other one <laughs> just to get them to stop asking. Uh, well, maybe I can say, what feedback do you get that people say, oh, yes, that makes such sense to me. I do that. Or that's easy. Or I'm doing that, you know, because it's really I identifying I do this already. Yes, of course I can do this. Well, the one that I get the best feedback from and the one that resonates for people the most, because I suppose you could implement it very quickly with very dramatic results is the first one called the rule of yes. Mm -hmm. And the rule of yes basically is predicated upon the principle that moments of happiness are all around us. And the only barrier to achieving that is saying yes. Because when you say, I mean, it's, when you think about, for example, in improv, um, there's mm -hmm. a rule in improv called yes and, right? Mm -hmm. So if there are two performers on the stage and one of the performers says, oh, look at that cute pink pig running by your feet. The other performer would say, there's no pig there. And that's the end of the scene. I mean, mm -hmm. that scene just dies. But if he says, oh, yes, and I want to get that apple out of his mouth because I love apples, then the scene could continue. Well, the same is true with happiness. And I'll never forget uh, when we were in Iceland with my two kids, we were in Reykjavik for a few days, and then they had planned they had this meticulously planned trip. We were supposed to leave on a Sunday morning. Well, it just turned out that Sunday night, Iceland was going to play England in the Euro Cup or France in the Euro Cup. They'd meet, met the semifinals. It was, they were the Cinderella team. And so my kids decided we were going to completely change everything up so we could have that amazing experience with, with you know, 10,000 Icelanders on a hill in downtown Reykjavik watching, you know, their Cinderella team play in the Euro Cup, which was amazing. But the most incredible experience came afterwards. And this was one none of us anticipated. There was a waterfall about two hours away that was supposedly one of the most beautiful in the whole country. And we had to pretty much resign ourselves to the fact that we weren't going to see it because the game would end too late. Well, the game ended at 10 o'clock. And we realized that in Iceland at that moment, midnight was about when sunset. So if we very quickly drove the two hours to that waterfall, we might catch it while it's still light. So we drove to the waterfall and you could actually walk behind the waterfall. We got there as the sun was setting and the water, I promise you, we took pictures of this. There are pictures of it that we later found on the internet. The water itself was bright orange <laughs> and it was so magnificent. It was almost like at this spiritual moment. I had never seen solid sheets of orange water because of the refraction of the sun's rays. <sighs> And as we got back into the car and drove to where we were staying that night, it occurred to all of us that if we hadn't said yes to watching the game and changing the entire itinerary, we would have never had that experience, that incredible moment of happiness and, and joy from this beautiful natural phenomenon 
not only would it have not happened, we would have never known it could have happened. And that's what these moments are happiness around us. By saying no, we close the door and we can't have that moment that we don't even know is there. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good reminder that um, you just like being open to it, being willing to um, say yes. And, I mean, and it might I, be perceived as a risk or, I mean, it, it's just like taking action, right? It's And taking responsibility for decisions we make. Well, and yes, I mean, when you think of the, just with a, a couple, I, I had been doing a series of workshops at Wanderlust, which you know is one of the largest yoga and uh, wellness and festival companies, music festival companies in the world. And I was talking about the rule of yes. And I remember one couple said, why don't we say yes to each other more often? Huh. How much fuller mm. would our lives be if we said yes? Mm. If you said, let's do this, and we said yes, rather than it becomes a debate and a negotiation, and mm. why don't we just say yes to each other? I want to live that life. And, I, and for me, I felt like, oh, my God, I just had a massive impact on their relationship. Mm which was incredibly rewarding for me. I mean, you know, after all, if you remember back to earlier in our conversation, you know, our legacy is the impact we've had on others. And so, you know, I, I look at what at these couples and, and obviously just hope that they're still saying yes to each other and reaping all those rewards. And to think it's it started potentially at that workshop is makes me very happy. So without being humble, Mark, what do you really value about yourself and the work and the legacy that you're leaving. You've just given a lovely story there. Well, for me, I, you know, the whole purpose in writing this book was to, to give my kids this ability to achieve as much happiness and as I've had and, and even more. And, you know, I'll, I'll share with you an example. I was one time uh, talking to my son, Jason, about uh, one of the key concepts in how I live my life, which is living your life like you're on vacation, which is this openness to conversation and discovery. And, you know, people come to your town on vacation. Why can't you live your life when you're not on vacation as if you were? And my son said, I already do that. Mm -hmm. Here, I Here's what I do. I get up in the morning and I think, I would love a really great tasting cup of coffee. I'm going to get one. Even when I go to work, I get a great tasting cup of coffee. I have lunch at a place that I really like. I, I talk to my coworkers in those odd moments between when we're doing our tasks. I make the most out of everything. If, if, if I'm not particularly into an assignment at work, I'll figure out a way that it becomes engaging and I can get passionate about it. Because after all, when you're on vacation, part of the joy is the true passion you experience in all these great moments mm. that you're having. Mm. And it was so rewarding for me to see that perspective embodied without me telling him to embody it, but embodied by him. And this is actually before he had even finished the book, he told me this. And I realized through my example he had embodied that perspective. And for me, that was unbelievably rewarding. Mm. Yeah, and I shared with you before we, we came online that yesterday was my wedding anniversary and um, my husband and I went into New York City to enjoy the day. And it's just exactly that. We, 
we it was a little spontaneous. We decided we'd say yes to everything using your your, your expression, and it was as if we were tourists in in New York City. Instead of going in there for meetings or whatever, we just played. We we did crazy things together. He even took a timeline video of Times Square. We went up there in the freezing cold, standing on the top of the steps of Times Square and did this time lapse over half an hour. So we just really embraced the whole thing by just taking every opportunity. We had added to our suitcase of happiness through saying yes yesterday. Well, you know, there was a, I remember the, the, the conversation we had and there was a part of the story that you didn't mention in this iteration that actually resonated for me the most. And it was how when you were taking the fast boat over to the city, that it was very choppy and probably not as comfortable as you would have liked. And you both embraced that and chose to enjoy that sensation rather than to complain about it. In essence, to say yes to experiencing that sensation. And I can't help but thinking that because you did that, it framed the context for the remainder of your day. Could be. I hadn't thought of that, but it could be. I'm also one of these people that I love storms and when when this rain pours down and the winds are howling, I like to open the windows and everyone thinks I'm crazy, but I just, I love that. And maybe it comes from my childhood and I'm now disclosing stuff. Growing up in Australia with a lot, a lot of heat waves, the rains came down. We as kids would run out into the street and just love the rain and get feel so fantastic that we were freshened by the rain and it just was such a break to the heat that we – the oppressive heat we were feeling. Interesting, so right? Funny. Well, it's so <laughs> funny. You know, with my kids, my daughter Marissa used to always say – Daddy, it's pouring outside. Let's do a rain walk. And we'd get on our rain boots and our umbrellas and we'd splash in all the water because, you know, the water goes down those gutters. And it's one of our fondest memories when most people would say, why in the world would you go outside? It's cold. It's wet. It's miserable. And for us, it was the opportunity to do a rain walk together. Yeah. yeah. Such fun. Yeah. What are three wishes that or one wish that you might have for spreading this beautiful message that you have and truly believe in of happiness? Well, if I was to have one wish, and and you did say a wish, so I can wish large, Mm -hmm. because why not? I I try to live large, I'm going to wish large. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I'm, you know, this recent election uh, only points more to why this is a poignant wish for me. I think that if more people were to embrace these concepts of how to live a full, rich, present, happy life filled with gratitude, and if more and more and more people reprioritize what they want out of life, I think that we could eventually hit a tipping point. You know, I'm a big believer in a tipping point that all of a sudden it becomes easier and easier as more and more people have a different consciousness. I would love to see the work that I'm doing and the work of so many of the other people on your show. And thank you for turning me on to a couple of folks to listen to because it was such meaningful conversations that you've had with them. 
I would like to see that all of this work produces a tipping point where all of a sudden humanity can head in a different direction, a direction of inclusiveness and a direction of mutual support. I mean, you know, we all have a very limited time here, and I would love to see it focused in more positive ways than unfortunately it's been over the last who knows how many years. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful wish, and um, I'd like to also wish the same. Thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you for asking. And Mark, how may people contact you? But let me also remind people who who want to go and look at the show notes page, you'll find links to to Mark through his social media. He's very strong on Twitter and Facebook. You'll there'll be links to the book, the YouTube, I think. So there were a number of things there that you'll be able to access Mark. Um, and I really encourage you to go there. And that, as I mentioned at the beginning, will be positivitystrategist.com um, slash PS60. It's episode 60. So yes, now, Mark, if you wouldn't mind just sharing for people who are just purely listening. Sure. Well, the best place to start is to go to the website, suitcaseofhappiness.com, and that's H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S. Or you can go to Twitter, at Mark Jaffe. I'm a very, very frequent poster on Twitter, and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts. You could always DM me. There's an email address on the website if you'd like to just talk to me privately. I mean, I'd love to connect with your listeners. I mean, I love the the people that you have on the show. I, I got to believe that the people who care about what we care about are people that I would love to connect with more. So please do try to contact me. Instagram is Mark Jaffe one. So please also connect with me there. That's beautiful. Yeah. So um, I'm sure we will continue to think how we can serve um, not only ourselves, each other and wider humanity. We're on the same path, man. We are definitely on the same path. This has been such a joy for me to spend time with you. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. Thank you. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember what you focus on grows so grow towards your best. <laughs>